Well, good morning again. I'm glad to see you all here this morning. Well, this, uh, in prep for this series that we started, Carissa and I uh, were talking a lot about it. I read some books on it and just lots of prayer and discussion. And when we were talking about and seriously considering what it means to watch your words, uh, we, we even had to look at our own lives and our own use of words and expressions. And we were challenged and encouraged. And uh, even this last Sunday, after preaching the first message in this series, I found myself having to apologize to my oldest daughter, I have to say now, uh, Liberty, for my use of words and my poor use of words. And I don't want to count how many times because I'm ashamed of it. But I had to realize that even as uh, we're pursuing maturity and faith in Christ, there are times that we still fall short. And that uh, this, this process of becoming more and more like Jesus is a process. And it takes more than our lifetimes to accomplish. But it's by the grace of God that as we walk and as we're challenged and as we encourage, that we can become more and more like Jesus. And that he is so gracious to us. And the uh, last week we looked at how powerful our mouths are. They are so powerful. They have the, the power of life and death. With your mouth, you can bless someone, and you can encourage them, and you can change their day, or you can destroy them in an instant without even realizing it. But the reason that our mouths are so uh, important and our use of words is because it's the battleground of life and death in our mouths. And it's the battleground of sin or the holy life that Jesus calls us to. When God created everything in the universe and everything in it, he used words. Just, just stop and think about that for a minute. God didn't just think it. God didn't just mo- do a hand motion. He, he created the universe with words. That's how powerful we, that words are. And God saying that he created us in his image isn't just our bodies and all of the things that are about it, but it's the creative power that we have, even in our very words and in our hands and things like that. But uh, in Garden of Eden, when the enemy of God wanted to destroy, he twisted God's words. He took something that was good and a command, and he twisted it and made people question, did God really say this? And he made the Adam and Eve question what God's intention using merely his words. He didn't force them to do anything. He tricked them with his words. So last week, as we started uh, the series on Watch Your Words, James taught us how important it is to guard our mouths, how important it is to watch what we say. And uh, last week we talked about how uh, uh, the, the life of faith actually looks beyond the external things of faith, of just going to church and just praying and uh, all of the things that we can look at. And he actually, James actually says that if you want to see where your life of faith is, just look at the words that are coming out of your mouth. Are your words honoring to others? Are they words of praise or are they words uh, of discouragement? Are they words of hurt? And so he says that if we want to test our maturity, we have to guard our mouths and watch the words that are coming out of each other. And if we fully grasp the power that we have in our mouths, one analogy I've heard is it's like a loaded gun. If we thought of our mouths as a loaded gun, we wouldn't flippantly be firing them at each other. We would be very careful with what we do and what we say. 
And so uh, this morning, uh, our main text that we're going into is James 3, 3 to 6. And normally I would say look on the screen behind you, but uh, that were behind me, but it's not going to work this morning. So we're going old school with all things. There's a hard copy Bible in the pew in front of you or beside you, or if you have a, an iPhone or an iPad, uh, feel free to swipe over there in your preferred translation. I'll be reading out of the uh, NIV 2011, so it'll be, maybe there's some few word differences out of that blue uh, Bible, but, um, but the three main uh, things and problems that James brings up in our text this morning is this, and uh, we'll be dealing with them out of order, but uh, is the first is that evil and destructive speech comes from sin and is not of God. The second is that corrupt speech causes corruption of the body. And finally, a corrupted body corrupts a whole life. Very positive message this morning. That's what James is is telling us, and that's what I'm preaching on this morning. But So those are the three problems we'll be looking at. But at the end, I don't want to leave us hanging. We'll have one solution. So James 3, 3 to 6 out of the NIV 2011 says this. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. May God bless the reading of his word. Should I just close there? No? Well, the first uh, point that we're bringing up, evil and destructive speech comes from sin and is not of God. So the verse, uh, the section of the verse in uh, verse 6 is consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. I didn't realize this until our third summer living here, but the Okanagan has a lesser known name outside of here, but it's called Smokinagan. And... uh, it doesn't take very much for us to realize what those forest fires come from. One small match that's discarded or a cigarette that's thrown out of a car window can cause huge, devastating destruction. Just one small, careless match or cigarette. And in October 8, uh, 1871, the infamous Chicago fire was started by a lantern that was kicked over by a cow. And there's a song about this. <laughs> Fire, fire. I didn't realize it was actually about the Chicago fire until I was doing research for this. So you can tell how much kids' songs always line up with, uh, with life. But this one fire that was started by a lantern, kicked over by a cow, killed over 300 people. And it made 100,000 people homeless over several days. And uh, just one poor decision by that, that farmer who had a lantern in a barn with a cow, caused so much untold destruction, countless of millions of dollars, years of repair, deaths, and countless suffering for those who survived that trauma and devastation. One lantern, one cow, and that's it. And that is what uh, James likens our tongues to, a small spark 
that can set, on, set a huge fire. And so the, uh, and Jesus himself actually talks about this uh, in the book of Matthew. But he, uh, to give a little background here, uh, back in Jesus' time, there was a group of religious people called the Pharisees. And they made a lot of rules. They thought that the Bible didn't have enough, even though in the Old Testament it had hundreds of different commands. They added a few. And one of them that they were really strict on was ritual cleansing. And so they wanted you to purify uh, yourself. There was a belief in those days that your body was inherently bad. And so you needed to purify it in ritual ways in order to be cleansed. And uh, I won't get into too much of the... the the nuance behind this, because it's a little weird, but Jesus, is, Jesus and his disciples are uh, criticized by the Pharisees for not washing their hands before they eat. Now, uh, it's cold and flu season, so that's a bit yuck to think about, and especially back in the, those days, farm animals and everything, but the, the issue isn't just on the, the washing of the hands. It was about the, the rules that, were, that Jesus is fighting against. So Jesus says, uh, he calls to the crowd in Matthew 10, uh, I'm reading 10 and 11, and then I'll skip over to 17 to 20 if you want to follow, around, uh, follow along. So Matthew 10, 10 to 11, and then 17 to 20. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth is what defiles them. And then skipping over to verse 17. Don't you see, and this story, the skipping over to 17 is when uh, the disciples ask him, uh, what are you talking about? Please explain this. And so he says to his disciples, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? I don't need to say the word, the four-letter word starts with P, ends with P. We were talking about it at breakfast this morning because Liberty has a book about the body. It was, it was quite appetizing. I had already eaten, thankfully. But the thing that comes out of a person's mouth comes from the heart, and these defile them. For out of a person's heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. So Jesus says it's not just about having clean hands. It's about having a clean heart. He says, it's not, it's not what you put into your mouth. It's not what you eat that makes you defiled. It's what comes out of your mouth. Because he said, what comes out of your mouth starts in your heart. And so uh, Jesus says that what comes out not only shows our hearts, but it actually corrupts them. So what does this look like? It doesn't take very much uh, imagination, unfortunately, if you've been around the church long enough uh, but just think about how many churches have been destroyed, how many people's lives have been hurt, how many people have walked away from salvation because of gossip and slander by those who would say they're followers of Jesus. How many churches have been ruined by these things? It's a sad thing. How many individuals have had their reputations ruined because of such talk? People who would never think of setting fire to somebody's house set fire to other people's lives with their words, with a careless word, a careless gossip, a, a careless judgment against someone in what they think is the privacy of them and a friend. They commit spiritual arson to other people. So where does this fire come from? Where is this destructive power from? James leaves us absolutely no doubt. In the final verse, he says it comes from hell. 
Kent Hughes, a theologian and pastor, says, the uncontrolled tongue has a direct pipeline to hell. The uncontrolled tongue has a direct pipeline to, to hell. He also suggests that the flow in the pipeline goes both ways. He says the evil words that can come out of our mouth, they're not from God, they're from the enemy. And he says that uh, it goes both ways because when we say evil things to other people, it actually can take them away from following Jesus. It can destroy their faith and cause them to be separated from God forever. It can cause them to walk away. If we say something in absolute judgment or hate or evil, it can actually hurt people. So how many people reject God because of what people who say they're Christians say to them? They approach them with judgment and hate rather than love and mercy and kindness. All of us need to reflect so much on our use of words. Have we been guilty of judging somebody and their situation with only one side of the story? Have we looked at somebody's life and, and made a quick rash judgment in our hearts against them without taking time first to seek and understand their side? Have we criticized unfairly or complained about something without actually taking time to help ourselves in, in uh, the situation? The one thing I was, I was talking about my mother-in-law uh, this, this weekend about was it's, it's always easier to criticize somebody else for doing something than to actually do it ourselves. To think, well, this person, they should be doing it this way. But we don't know the whole situation, and we don't know how much work it takes. We don't actually know the, the whole thing. But it's so much easier just to make a judgment, to make a criticism, than it is. So, so far we have seen that when we speak evil words... Uh, we speak words of the enemy, not of God. And next, we learn that corrupt speech corrupts the whole body. In, uh, this is taken directly out of what it says in, uh, in part of verse 6. It says that it corrupts the whole body. Evil speech corrupts the whole body. So our lives, if we think about our lives, uh, often they, they seem really complex. We think about uh, the decisions we make, the, desire, the desires that we have, the emotions that we have. They're quite complex. But James actually uh, centers it and says it all starts and ends with our mouths. And the reason it starts or ends with our mouths is because uh, speech actually starts with our thoughts. Our thoughts are what start as the center of everything. How we think about somebody else or a situation, uh, whether we admit it to ourselves or to the other person, that's where the center of it begins. So... Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody where you've been talking and all of a sudden words come out of your mouth and you think, where did that come from? You, you are just as surprised and shocked as the other person when you have said something. And you think, where did that come from? Where did that, where did that anger come from? Where did that, where did that judgment come from? And we wish that we could take those words back. But... Uh, what James teaches us is that our evil speech starts with our evil thoughts. So James actually likened thinking evil against someone as actually murdering them. He, uh, when he was on earth and in, in various places, he would say, you have heard it said, in the Old Testament it says, thou shalt not murder. Uh, but he said, but if you have hateful thoughts in your heart against somebody, you've already committed murder against them. And the reason is because all of our actions flow out of what we think and what we do then flows out of that. 
So if we think something evil against something, someone, and we keep dwelling on that, even if we don't have the courage to do the action, in our hearts we've already killed them. And so uh, maybe you don't say to someone that you hate them, but maybe you think it when they talk to you. And whether, whether you want it to or not, eventually it'll come out of your, in your words. And so this is why uh, corrupt speech corrupts the whole body, because it starts with evil thoughts in our heads. So first, we say that corrupt speech is not from God. And secondly, we saw that corrupt speech corrupts the whole body. And next, we see how a corrupted body corrupts our whole life. So again, in uh, the last verse of 6, it says, It sets the whole course of one's life on fire. So again, back to the body thing, there are uh, different types of parasites in the world. And there are certain types of parasites that actually kill their host. They start as fairly small, fairly innocuous, uh, but eventually they will actually kill their host as they take over their entire body. And so uh, the way that uh, this works is one single person who can dwell on evil thoughts and will start to say evil things to other people, will actually infect those around them. The church is often likened uh, by Paul and others in the New Testament as a body. And it's done that because the church in many ways is a body. Just as your body is made up of a bunch of different organs and that have different functions and different roles, the church is made up of different people that have different skills and different abilities, different levels of talents, some have different gifts in certain areas. And one person can infect and affect other people, either positively or negatively. And the uh, psychology says that um, uh, rude words or hurtful things are actually 2.9 times more powerful than positive words. So one person who's saying something negative to you, in order to overcome that, you have to have at least three other people that are giving you positive words. And so one person who's negative can affect so many other people so powerfully. And so an evil tongue is a parasite upon the whole life of not just them, that individual person, but their whole family, their whole church, their whole community. So someone saying something bad about somebody else affects how that person looks at them. And just think about this in your own life. Have you ever had uh, somebody at your work or in a friend circle that's come to you and said, have you heard what this person did? Have you heard what this person said to me? Have you heard this? Have you ha-? And then you are sitting there, you hear the story, and it has nothing to do with you. You probably know this other person. Maybe they're a friend or a friend of a friend or a family member. And even though it was not about you, it wasn't against you, this person never did anything wrong to you. Because this has been shared to you, this changes how you look at this person. You start to think, well, that person's not very nice. That person's not very, uh, that person's not very loving. That person's not very kind. And then your interactions with that person that was being talked about now are tarnished and different. And you're only hearing one side of the story. And everyone in, in this room, if, whether we admit it or not, we're the heroes of our own story. Whenever we're in situations, we're the victim. Maybe there's parts of it that we'll take responsibility for, but none of us are truly unbiased. We, we can't possibly be unbiased because that's how we're wired. That's how we are. 
And so we have to be so careful with gossip because it, we're hearing one side of the story and it affects how we look at other people. So whatever, whatever situation that we're in, one person's gossip or slander or twisting of words or subtle manipulation, boasting, unfair criticism, it all spreads. It spreads to those around them. And this means that other people start making judgments against other people even though they have no idea what the truth is. And so our mouths can spread evil. And uh, the danger is that left without uh, control and left without being in check, uh, this evil will infect our whole selves as individuals and then those around us. And uh, often when we think about what the source, uh, what the source of things in our lives are, we think, okay, it's, it's just who I'm wired to be. But actually, the, the origin of our action is not just our, ourselves. It's our mouths. It says that the, uh, the mouth uh, makes great boasts. And uh, I used to think that the metaphor that is uh, in, uh, in this section, it talks about, um, I'll just reread it, three and four. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Now, don't, you don't have to answer out loud, but just think, if you're thinking about this, we're talking about the mouths, we're talking about the power of the tongue. What do you think in this story, in your own mind, is the, is the tongue? Whenever I, whenever I would think about this, okay, it's talking about the bits and it's talking about the rudder. The tongue must be the bits and the rudder, right? Because it's talking about the small thing. But that's actually not what it is. The tongue in this is the horse and the ship. The, the, uh, James is talking about the power of the tongue. The tongue is a powerful force. And a, sh uh, a ship that doesn't have a strong pilot just goes wherever the wind blows it. And the same with a horse, without having a bit, a, pers a small person has no, cho or no chance of controlling a well over a thousand pound animal. No matter how strong you are, you have no chance to, uh, to move a, a horse around. And so the, uh, I used to think that that's what it was too, but first we saw that speech comes from sin, and next we saw that this corrupt speech corrupts our whole body, and finally we see how this leads to a whole life of corruption. So now, uh, once again, if I just close right here, head bows, eyes closed, we're all very much uplifted this morning. We're going out singing, victory in Jesus. No, we're not. We're thinking, well, this is great. We feel warned. And just like last week, maybe we're feeling like taking a vow of silence. But the answer is that we need help. The three inter interrelated problems that we're talking about that James brings to us as strong warnings, and they're strong warnings because it's a dangerous thing. We have one solution. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ starts with sadness. It starts with realizing that we're not good enough, that we're not strong enough, that we can't do it on our own. It's just like an addict that has to say the first step of getting over an addiction is saying, I'm an addict. I'm addicted. So the first step in the, the gospel of Jesus is saying, I'm sinful. I can't get out of my sin. 
I can't possibly do this on my own. That's the starting place of hope, is full surrender and saying, I can't do it. I can't control my tongue. It's not a matter of will. It's not a matter of trying hard enough. It's not a matter of strategies. It's about admitting our weakness and our need. And that's where Jesus comes, and that's where Jesus saves us. That's where the story starts to change. So first of all, we need to know and to feel and to experience our deep need for God. We need Jesus. If we think we're good enough, if we think, well, I'm pretty good, uh, Jesus can come and help me, but I'm pretty good on my own. I don't really need him. And then if we think that maybe we can get by without God, then, and we don't, we're not willing to admit we're helpless and that we need help, then we won't seek it. It's just like an addict that hasn't hit drop rock bottom yet. They'll just, maybe they'll get a little better, but eventually they're just going to sh- go back down. We have to start there. We have to realize that we can't get better without God's help. And so the tongue is so powerful that we actually can't control it ourselves. It's like an untrained horse or like a ship that's getting blown around. No matter what, we can't do it. And so the, what we need is God's Holy Spirit to help us. We need God, uh, who is so much more powerful than us. He's more powerful than sin to come along and say, you don't have to be strong enough. I'm strong enough. Where you are weak, I am strong. That's the the upside-down kingdom of God. He says that you are, uh, in your weakness is when I am strong. It's when we admit, I need help. I can't control my tongue. I keep saying things that I don't want to say. It's saying, Jesus, help me. Help me control my mouth. Help me control my tongue. And so the, the tongue can't be controlled by a sheer force of will. It must be trained patiently through God's help. And uh, the metaphor of uh, the horse being turned by a bridle. The bridle is, uh, is the control of discipline powered by the Holy Spirit. And uh, for the cowboys in the room, you could stand up and say, what is it like trying to put a bit on a wild stallion? If you, if you somehow were able to go out into the bush, find a wild horse, and somehow get, a, get a, uh, a halter and a bit in their mouth, that's the extent of my knowledge, uh, on the mouth of the horse and jump on the back, just because you have a bit there, it's not going to go very well, because I've seen this in rodeos. <laughs> But no, you need, it takes time, it takes control, it takes, it takes consistent training of that horse. You actually have to break that horse in order to have it obey with the bit. In the same way, we have to break the power of sin in our lives through reaching out to God, through help, through uh, consistent reading of his word, through prayer, through confession, through seeking him. That's how the, the wild horse, the wild stallion of our mouths can be trained. And in the same way, the metaphor of the ship that gets blown around, but it can be steered by the rudder, that only works if the pilot is competent. If you have somebody who's at the, the uh, steering wheel of the ship, probably has a different name, I'm not very nautical, uh, and they don't know where they're going, you have all the trust in that pilot, and they get to say where that ship's going, but if they have no idea where they're going, you're going to be lost at sea. And so in the same way, that pilot has to get trained to understand, I guess it would be a captain, whatever, the steering guy, let's call him, 
He has to get trained. He has to know how to read maps. He has to know where he's going. He has to know, I have the pilot laughing at me. Um, he has to know, uh, he has to know where he's going. You put so much trust in him. In the same way, we have to know, we have to allow God to be our pilot. We have to allow God to direct us where we're going. And so the example that, uh, that we're given by Jesus uh, and by followers of God is to daily surrender to him and to say, God, I need help. I can't do this on my own. And in a beautiful verse of Psalm 141.3, David cries out, Lord, set up a guard for my mouth. Keep watch at the door of my lips. David, the, the artistic psalmist, the guy that's described as a man after God's own heart, says, Lord, help me to guard my lips. Help me to guard my mouth. And he doesn't just say, help me to do it. He says, you do it. I can't do it. God, you guard my mouth. So sometimes we speak evil words without even thinking about it. Sometimes they pour out of us and we don't even, we don't even have a time to process before they come out. And as James warned earlier, self-deception is a powerful force. Sometimes we can speak evil words, but we'll justify them. We'll, we'll think, well, it's fine that I said that because I'm just speaking the truth. But the Bible actually says that we have to speak truth in love. So sometimes the truth that we think is truth isn't actually truth because we're not saying it in love. So there are times when we need to maybe have hard conversations. But Jesus says that our, our speech must be seasoned with salt and with grace. We need to make sure that what we're saying is actually true and that we'll actually help one another. So the self-deception that James warns us about, by its very nature, is not something that we can realize, that we can see. There's a, there's a beautiful analogy that I see about our own bias that I, in reading books, it really helps me, is uh, for those of us who are impaired with glasses or lenses, uh, contact lenses in our lives. You'll understand this metaphor, but others I'm sure can grasp it. But uh, when you were wearing your glasses or your contacts, you see clearly. But you don't think about your glasses or your contacts actually affecting your vision. It's just the way it is. And every single one of us looks through the lenses of our history, of our lives. That's how we perceive the world. So when we see a situation, we don't think about, well, it's being filtered through this lens, and so I'm not truly seeing it the way it is. That's why two different people can look at the exact same situation and get two completely different opinions on it. It's because they've had different experiences in their lives. They've had different upbringings. They have different emotional states. We have completely different ways of looking at the world. And... Uh, we often don't think about the way that we're looking at other things. We don't think about the bias that we're looking through. And that's why it's so important for us to come to God humbly and surrender ourselves. Because otherwise we can trick ourselves. We can be self-deceived so easily in thinking that we're in the right place when we might be in the wrong place. That we're saying the right thing when we may be saying the wrong thing. And so Jesus... Uh, the, the most important thing about Jesus is that he didn't just come and set a good example for us to follow. That's a great thing. And he says, follow me. And he says, follow me as I follow. Or sorry, Paul, Paul says, follow me as I follow Jesus. So there is something about being an example to follow. But Jesus had something that uh, we didn't have before we became followers of Jesus. 
and that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is just not this nebulous uh, thing that we can think about and say, oh yeah, the, the Holy Spirit's great. The Holy Spirit is actually the presence of God living inside of us. It is an amazing force. He, the Holy Spirit is an amazing force in our lives. It actually can bring us correction. It can actually, uh, he can actually, when we're about to say something, maybe we'll have something that all of, a st- all of a sudden stop us. But we have to be willing to surrender to that correction. We have to be willing to, uh, to say to God, help me. And so Jesus didn't just set a, an example to follow. He actually gave us the power to follow that example. The same way that he did, through surrendering to the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So the uh, self-deception, the issue sometimes is that we'll look around at other people and we'll think, okay, well, you know, the pastor's preaching about this, uh, this talking and using our words, and that's great. But oh, I'm so glad I'm better than sister so-and-so. Oh, she's got a lot of work. Or uh, better, way better than this person. And we go, okay, well, I, I may have some work to do, but they've got a lot more to do. And the only issue with this, besides it being prideful, I'll just leave that one aside, because that's a big problem, but is that God doesn't use the standard of one another to judge us. God actually uses the standard of himself. He says, be holy as I am holy. And I don't know about any of you, but I don't quite line up. And just as I started at the beginning, I realized uh, I've got a lot more growing to do as uh, I'm sure we all do in this room. So the, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament, there was a prophet named Isaiah. And he was an awesome prophet. And uh, he had this amazing vision of the Lord. He came, uh, he came into the presence of the Lord in this vision, and he saw these uh, angels. They're called seraphim. And they're saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. What an amazing thing. Isaiah must have been an amazing guy to be able to see the presence of the Lord. And now, put yourself in Isaiah's shoes. What are you feeling in this moment? What are you thinking? You're brought into the presence of the Lord, and you see angels praising God, saying, holy, holy, holy. How do you think you would react? How would Isaiah react? Does he start, he just has utmost joy. There's a song that says, I can only imagine what it will be like on the day that I'm in God's presence. Would I, would I sing praises? Would I just bow down? What would I do? And so imagine, does he, does he just shout out for joy? Does he start repeating what the angels say? Does he, does he have pride? Does he say, oh, I'm so special that I got chosen to come into the presence of the Lord? No. What his response is, is woe to me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Woe to me. Isaiah is given the beautiful gift of coming into the presence of the Lord Almighty with angels worshiping him. And other other translations say, woe to me, I am undone. He's brought into the presence of God, and he doesn't say, I'm better than the other prophets that weren't brought into the presence of God. Instead, he compares himself to the Lord Almighty. He says, 
I'm, I'm, I'm ruined. I'm wrecked. He responds with deep angst and confession of his sinfulness. That's his result. That's his thing. And then one of the seraphim, uh, continuing in 6 and 7 of Isaiah 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. As the angels praise, Isaiah cries out his confessions to God. He cries out his sinfulness, and he realizes his deep need for God. And notice, notice he, doesn't, he doesn't confess his actions. He doesn't say, this one time I did this. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips. He realizes the power of his mouth. And uh, on from here, Isaiah responds after he's cleansed, and God says, who are we going to send to go tell these people? And he says, I'm here, send me. So Isaiah finally, after being cleansed, responds to God in obedience. But the example that we have is to cry out our confessions to God, and he will cleanse us. But what the gospel says that we aren't good enough on our own. Jesus makes us good enough by his work on the cross. And so may none of us in this room be guilty of allowing sin to corrupt our speech and so cause that corruption to to spread. I'm going to give us four quick ways of responding uh, to the message this morning during this week. And then we're going to be closing this this morning's um, time together with communion. But the four things, I like to call it act on it. First of all is to reflect on your use of words. So uh, like me last Sunday, it could be after you've said the words that you regret. Or it could be before. It could be sitting and thinking about your words before you let them out of your mouth. And the second of all is to confess your sins to God. I'd love to say that I've went months without having to confess sin to God. I'd love to stand up here and say that I'm almost there. I'm almost perfect. But sadly, I make mistakes. I make bad choices more often than I'd like to admit. And so the the next step is to pray for help from God. We need God's help. We need his empowerment in our lives uh, to control our mouths, to control our actions. And then I would also uh, challenge you to read Isaiah 6 this week prayerfully. Meditate on it and just think about the example that Isaiah gives us. And so as I said, we're closing this morning's service with the sacrament of communion. Communion is a holy experience. It provides us with a beautiful opportunity to pause for a moment and to reflect not on what we've done, but what Jesus has done. So like Isaiah, it gives us an opportunity to confess and to be cleansed by God. The bread and the, the vine, the, the fruit of the vine, rather, represent Jesus' body and blood, respectively. And it's something that he said to do uh, often, when we meet together, in order to have an opportunity to remember what he has done. So Jesus shed his body, or broke his body and shed his blood willingly. Not because he had to, but because he loved us. He loved you so much that he didn't want you to stay where Isaiah was, confessing your guilt, confessing your sin without any hope. 
just as Isaiah was cleansed with the, the touching of the coal to his lips, we can be cleansed by the power of Jesus' work on the cross. Not just one time, but for all time. And so this isn't something that we do lightly or flippantly. Maybe it's something that we've done more times than we can count, or maybe today is going to be your first time doing it. But as, uh, as Church of the Nazarene, we celebrate what we call open communion, which means that as long as you would say you're a follower of Jesus Christ, as long as you would say that you put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus, and maybe that's even this morning, that you would take the bread and drink the, the cup of grape juice uh, to remember what Jesus has done and to thank him. But if you're not yet ready to make that commitment, then I would just ask you to pass that plate on by. But this is something that is symbolic that we do, but it's so much more than a symbol. There's something almost intangible about this, that Jesus didn't just come and do this as a metaphor. He's actually dwelling and with us in the elements when he does this. And in uh, Corinthians, uh, Paul warns that those who did this wrongly actually got sick and some of them died. There's a confession that, that God is holy and I am not. And so when we are doing this, we make sure that we confess our sins to God. Uh, one of the founders of uh, our theology, John Wesley, would say the, uh, the Lord's Prayer every day just as a way to make sure if he didn't have specific sins covered, the, part, the one line that says, forgive me my debts as I forgive those who de- her debtors against me, he made sure that covered any sins that he had forgotten to mention because he took God's holiness so seriously. And I don't think Jesus means for us to live a life of guilt. And so this is a time to reflect on maybe what we have done, but then to receive with joy and thanksgiving for what Jesus has done. And so uh, as we celebrate this morning, would you please take the time uh, to meditate and to reflect on what Jesus has done for you and has been willing to do for you if you would so accept it. So uh, as the worship team comes forward to play music uh, during our time of passing out the elements, I would ask for you just to hold on to them, and then we will, uh, I will lead us in taking them afterwards. But please join me in prayer. Father God, I thank you for your message this morning of warning that you have given us through James. I pray that you would forgive us when we sin and when we fall short. Lord, please cleanse our mouths. Purify us through your cleansing work of Jesus in our lives. Now as each of us take time to pause and reflect, give us the courage we need to confess our sins to you. And help us to reach out to our friends and family for help or forgiveness where needed. Jesus, thank you for your redeeming work in our lives. With us in our own strength, a holy life is impossible. It is beyond our grasp. But through your work in and through us, all things are possible. Thank you for what you have done, Jesus. As we celebrate communion, may it not, uh, may it not be with heavy hearts. May it be with hearts of thanksgiving and joy. And Lord, may this, may this message uh, be something that, uh, that we have preached, that I have preached this morning, not of uh, something that would just weigh on our hearts and our minds, but may we choose to act in obedience. May we not just be hearers of the words, but doers of the word. Help us to follow after you in whatever it looks like in our lives, 
if we have been guilty of gossip or anything, Lord, I pray that you would show us that correction, but that we would, uh, we would live joyful lives of surrender. Following after you isn't about being serious all the time. We are meant to have fun and laughter and joy. And so I pray that you would cleanse us of our sin and what would weigh us down and hold us back. And so as we celebrate communion this morning, may it truly be a celebration of your love for us, Jesus. And so may you be glorified and lifted high, and may your glory fill this place and the whole earth. In your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen.